This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's a delight for me to talk to you about plants and mushrooms and herbal supplements because it takes me back to the roots of my lifelong interest in poisoning. When I was four years old, my older brother and sister conspired to give me a handful of vitamin pills, telling me that they were M&Ms. I found out quickly that they weren't, and uh, that began my my journey. At the age of 18, I had the um, fortune of watching a group of traveling world travelers in India become intoxicated with something called Datura, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. And uh, they experienced significant hallucinations, difficulty peeing, um, confusion, and so on for several days. So I'd like to, to tell you some stories. I can't hope to cover all the field of plant poisoning, mushroom poisoning, and herbal and dietary supplements, but I'll tell some stories that help to illustrate some interesting points. And the first story is that uh, is one that you've probably seen in the storybooks about a young princess who ate part of an apple that was given to her by a wicked witch, and you know that she was found comatose and unresponsive, as if in a deep sleep. The antidote, of course, was mouth-to-mouth ventilation, which was performed, we call it love's first kiss, uh, but uh, clearly the, one of the first uses of an antidote in uh, medical history. So what was the probable toxin in the case of Snow White? It was probably belladonna, an anticholinergic compound, uh, causes drowsiness, causes stupor and even coma, and it can make people look like they're, in, like they're in a deep sleep. It also happens to cause some reddening of the skin tissues, some flushing, and the pupils to get large, which is why it got its name Belladonna, which is Italian for beautiful woman, because the thought was that large pupils and flushed face made for a beautiful woman. Clearly, the dose in the case of this and other poisons is key, a very small dose might cause the pupils to be dilated and the skin to flush, but the person to be otherwise unaffected. But larger doses might make the person uh, drowsy or confused or outright hallucinating, uh, or in significant cases, very large doses, comatose. So what we do at the Poison Control Center is all about doses. It's finding out what the substance is, determining how much of the substance was taken, and then making an estimate of what's the risk from that particular dose of that particular poison. What do we expect is likely to occur? What is the the likelihood of a bad outcome? Does the person need to go immediately to the emergency department, for example, or can they be treated at home? And you may have heard this before from some of the other speakers, but what the Poison Control Center does is a kind of triaging routine on the telephone with worried parents. Child has gotten into something at home, maybe eaten part of a plant, And they want to know, is it going to kill my child? Do I need to call 911? Do I need to come to the ER right away? In most cases, once we determine what the substance is and how much was taken, we can say with great confidence that, no, don't worry about it. It might cause mild symptoms, but it's not life-threatening. You do not need to come into the hospital. That obviously saves uh, a worrisome trip to the emergency department, a scary trip for the child, and a big expense to the medical system. Across the country, there are a number of poison control centers, and we contribute together to a national database that's updated daily from the poison control activity. And this accounts for about 2.5 million exposures per year. 
this is a list of the most common exposures in children under five, and you see that common household products are high on the list. This is what children have access to, cosmetics, pain relievers, cleaning products, things like that. Plants uh, have a place on that list, and there are about 40,000 cases per year. But deaths are actually quite rare. In many years, there's no deaths at all attributable to plants. In other cases, it might be just a few. So although it's a very common poisoning, it's not likely to produce serious illness. Probably the most common one that we deal with is something called Diefenbachia. It's often called mother-in-law's tongue because it has a very sharp effect when somebody bites into it. It causes immediate pain, redness, sometimes some swelling in the mouth, uh, and a screaming, and obviously scares the heck out of the parents whose child has taken a little bite of it. This is caused by little tiny crystals of calcium oxalate that reside in the leaves and cause this intense inflammatory reaction and acute pain. It's rarely life-threatening, but it's obviously very scary for the child and the parent, and potentially life-threatening if a large amount of it is, is ingested and it causes swelling in the back of the throat. I have yet to have seen a case like that. Most of them are mild. The other common plant that we deal with and that you've probably had exposure to at some time or another is poison oak, which is common in California and uh, causes an itchy rash. Does anybody recognize this plant? It's actually quite common around the Bay Area. You'll find it in the hills, uh, particularly in the East Bay, Marin County. Nope, this is hemlock. This is poison hemlock, the, the plant that was used to kill Socrates. It's a very dangerous toxin. Um, it's, uh, like I say, fairly common in the Bay Area, in the hills. You can recognize it by the, the stems, which are green, but have this kind of purple flecks. almost look like somebody with a paintbrush with purple paint came along and flecked the stems. And the flowers, when they're blooming, have a smell like some people describe it as like rat's urine. If you ever worked in a biology lab where they had rats, there's that unique odor of rat urine that you can uh, elicit when you crush the leaves or the flowers. Now, poison hemlock is sometimes mistaken for wild carrots. So people that are looking for natural food in the environment need to be extraordinarily careful. And I'll come back to this again, particularly when we talk about mushrooms. You need to be careful what you're picking and eating and be certain about what you have. Become an expert before you eat so you make sure that you don't eat the wrong substance and pay dearly for it. How about this plant? This is very common. You see it on most of the roadways between here and Davis. This is oleander. It's a wonderful plant. It grows really easily. It doesn't require much water. It gets nice and big and bushy, has flowers all summer long, and the deer won't eat it. Or if they do eat it, they'll die. Um, but they, don't tend to, they tend to stay away from it. So it's a very convenient plant to, to use as a, a broad hedge, um, like I say, right bet- between the... the um, two lanes of the highway going here in Davis. You'll see it all the time. There are a lot of... Uh, this is a, quite a dangerous substance. It, it contains cardiac poisons that are similar to digitalis, and it has caused some deaths, but uh, probably its bad reputation is, um, is overblown. There have been stories about you know, Boy Scout troops that were poisoned when they used the stems uh, to cook their hot dogs, and the poison came into the hot dogs. As far as I know, that's an apocryphal story. Um, the cases we've had where people got seriously ill or died was when they were intentionally trying to kill themselves with it, making a, brewing a tea, uh, soaking the leaves for a long period of time, getting a very concentrated effect. 
But from a simple uh, child chewing on a leaf momentarily, you know, cooking hot dogs, not in any cases that I'm aware of. This is the foxglove plant. This is the source of digitalis. It's a very useful drug. We know it as digoxin, which is very commonly used to treat atrial fibrillation. And um, it is a very useful drug. Like many th- th- drugs that we get from plants, very useful. But like any drug, any poison, the dose makes the poison. So a small dose may be helpful. A large dose could be fatal. Does anybody recognize this plant? Well, it says pompous grass on it, so obviously you should. Um, this is a very common plant in the Bay Area, and we did not realize how toxic it was until we had a case uh, some years ago, a, young, a family of uh, recent immigrants from Laos who were uh, taking the roots of this plant uh, out of the, the uh, Berkeley Marina and using the roots as a substitute for uh, bamboo shoots. And they had done this a few times before without any harm. But at this particular time of the year, there's certain times of the year that this plant produces cyanide in its roots. And they became extremely poisoned. The young child who had eaten most of this uh, nearly died from cyanide poisoning from the roots of this plant. So we, we've discovered, after this case, from some of our colleagues at UC Berkeley, that the plant is edible most of the year, but not at the certain times of the year when it generates these cyanogenic glycosides. This is a drug known as Deuteriostromonium, or commonly called Jimson weed. Jimson is probably comes from Jamestown, Jamestown weed. Uh, this plant was growing outside of Jamestown, and there's a story about uh, British soldiers during the Revolutionary War who made a salad from this plant, uh, looked like nice green, good, le- good leaves for a salad, uh, and became intoxicated by it. This is an intoxication that's very similar to that of belladonna, the, the drug that uh, brought down Snow White. And you'll see the picture here from um, Alice in Wonderland, the Mad Hatter's Tea Party. This is a drug that can cause uh, intense hallucinations, uh, erratic behavior, a delirium, uh, and um, so it's associated with this plant. And this is the one that um, was at the center of the cases that I saw when I was 18, this is one of my high school classmates who, besides his interest in guitars, had a lifelong interest in drugs and alcohol uh, and uh, was an expert in all things related to that. This is the plant known as datura. Uh, the seed pods look these kind of spicy uh, and spiky seed pods. The seeds are known as datura seeds. And in Indian uh, mythology, datura was a drug that was to be taken only by Shiva. Shiva is one of the three triumvirate gods in the Hindu mythology, Shiva was supposed to be the only god that was capable of withstanding the effects of Datura. Well, this group of world travelers that I came across thought that they could try this Datura tea um, and got more and more intoxicated. The interesting thing about this is that not only does it make you intoxicated, but it makes you very thirsty. Your mouth gets very dry. So they were making this tea. They were drinking more and more of it, of course, because their mouths were so dry. And as they became more and more intoxicated, they became blind because of the effect on vision. It blurs the vision. And they were unable to urinate, another effect of the medication. So here they were full of fluids, dry mouth, drinking more fluids, rolling around in agony because they couldn't urinate. And this went on for two or three days. We have a, a way of remembering the anticholinergic syndrome, which is what they were experiencing. Mad as a hatter, being going crazy. Blind as a bat because of this effect on the vision. Red as a beet because the skin gets very flushed. Hot as a hair because they can't sweat, they get very hot. And very dry as a bone. 
This is ricinus communis. Does that um, ring a bell, ricinus communis? It's also known as the castor bean plant, but there you hear the, the, the name ricin somewhere in there. This is the source of ricin and the castor beans, and here are the castor beans. Um, these are potentially quite toxic, although if you swallow an intact bean, probably no, no harm at all because it doesn't get broken down easily. It probably passed through the gut without any harm. If the seeds are crushed and ground to a fine powder, the person could be very intoxicated or very sick from it. And if it's injected, perhaps even more so. So the picture on the upper right corner is of Georgi Markov. He was uh, a former agent for the Bulgarian Secret Service who had defected to London, was working as a journalist in London. This is in the 1980s, I think. And he was standing, waiting for a bus when someone walked by and accidentally poked him with the sharp tip of their umbrella. Sorry, very sorry, walked on. He didn't think much of it, but then he began to feel ill within a few hours, went to a hospital, and was dead within two days. And it was thought that um, he had been injected with a tiny pellet containing ricin. So the ricin has had a, a um, outsized kind of reputation in the world of poisons to be used in, in sort of warfare-type poisons. So sometimes uh, plants are used as a form of medication, Eating more natural foods or more uh, healthful plants may be a way of in improving our own health, and uh, taking herbal teas may be a way of enhancing uh, various aspects of our health. So I'd like to talk for a few minutes about herbal products and um, dietary supplements. You may have seen this in the news recently. In San Francisco, we've had two cases of serious illness uh, related to ingestion of herbal tea that was purchased in a Chinatown uh, shop. The um, tea material, the material that was made, used to make the tea looked like this. It's a combination of roots and leaves. And the root in question that we were concerned about is uh, this one here. This is the root of the plant called monkshood or aconitum. Monkshood has been a, a well-known poison in Western and Eastern culture for thousands of years uh, and known to be extremely toxic to the heart which is what happened in these cases in San Francisco, uh, but is frequently used to improve energy and for various other measures, as long as the right dose is applied. And what we don't know for sure what happened in these two cases. It's still under investigation by the health department, but we suspect that for some reason these patients got a higher dose than expected. It's good to keep in mind that herbals are not always herbal. Uh, and this is a case that occurred some years ago. A 42-year-old woman, she was actually a professor at a East Bay University. Previously in good health, uh, she had been taking an herbal remedy for insomnia and presented with acute hepatitis. The product that she was using, what's called a patent medicine, meaning it's an herbal medicine that has been converted into pills. So rather than having uh, a bag of herbs uh, and roots to make into a tea, uh, this was, had been ground into a powder placed in capsules, and then she was to take one or two capsules at a time. And this is a product known as Jin Bu Huan. So a laboratory analysis was done of these pills, and this is an example of what's called an HPLC lab analysis. This is a perfume. If you think of a natural product uh, and you look at it in these, in, with uh, HPLC laboratory techniques, you expect to see multiple peaks so that's why we see these multiple peaks here, representing multiple different chemicals that you would expect to find in a natural product. 
Not a single chemical like was found in this case. Here's a single peak, pure extracted chemical, and this is called tetrahydropalmitine. This is a chemical that is known to be hepatotoxic and was found in the original Jinbuhuan, but these pills, these um, capsules, have been made basically with, adulterated with the pure chemical compound. You may know that uh, the, the Attorney General of New York has taken an interest in uh, potentially f- false or misleading claims of herbal products and dietary supplements, and he did a study in which he looked at products off the shelf from CVS and Walgreens and other places that we have come to trust, um, natural products, and found that in many cases, by looking at the DNA analysis of the products, that they didn't contain any of this purported product like ginseng or other products that they supposedly had in them. Now, there's been some controversy. The the manufacturers of these products said, oh, no, we made pure extracts of these products, kind of like this tetrahydropalmitine idea, that we extracted the pure ingredients, and therefore you didn't find it in the DNA because we had extracted it out of that. Seems a pretty a lame argument, but it's still being investigated. So where where do we stand on the the control of these substances? What What does the FDA do with regards to dietary supplements? If you want to take a new drug, let's say a new drug for hypertension or for diabetes, you would expect that the FDA has looked carefully at this drug, determined uh, through animal and human studies that it's not only safe, but effective for the indication, that it actually lowers the blood sugar or lowers the blood pressure, that it works for its intended purpose before it gets onto the market and is used by the population. When it comes to herbal supplements, dietary supplements, that's not the case. That the the dietary supplement and edu- the dietary what is it the Health and Education Act Dietary Supplement and Health Education Act DSHEA of 1994 that is public law is quite different in its approach to the control uh, of these products in terms of their safety and efficacy. So the DSHEA limits the FDA. Number one, dietary supplements do not need to be proven safe or effective before they are marketing. Amazing. They do not need to be proven safe or effective. The burden of proof is on the FDA before a dangerous product can be removed from the market. Now, there have been a few removed. Jinbuwan was one of them, but it's much harder. The, the threshold is higher for action. And marketers, of course, they can't claim a specific disease treatment but they can claim things that sound a lot like treatment. For example, they can say, well, this, this provides nutritional support. For example, it supports eye health or it supports immune function. And, of course, a number of people who are interested in public health and safety and drug regulation have taken issue with this but have been unsuccessful so far in changing the law um, but have been successful at least in getting some products off the market. A number of these products are used in bodybuilding and in workout pre-workout routines, um, and there's a fair amount of concern not only among the general public but also among the military, which, which encourages the use of a certain degree of supplement use to help trainees um, invigorate themselves before training, uh, but, uh, but there's potential for real harm. So we think of caffeine as a natural product of coffee and caffeine-like substances in tea, but did you know that you can buy pure caffeine, like powder, so that you can add your own caffeine to your 
product of choice. You can stir it into your milk in the morning if you like, and you can buy it in very large quantities uh, for a very low price. The problem with caffeine, of course, is that too much of caffeine is not necessarily a good thing. And we've had a number of cases, of course, where people uh, just simply feel terribly anxious uh, and feel their heart racing, but relatively harmless. They just get an anxiety attack, and they come to the ED uh, for, for evaluation. But we've also seen other people who have had dangerous arrhythmias from too high a caffeine level uh, and effects on the blood pressure and so on. The military had some specific concerns about workout products, including one called DMAA, which is uh, a, a, not really a, a dietary supplement, but sold as such. And this is where sometimes the, the law gets skirted by pr- pr- promoting a chemical as a dietary supplement when it really should be evaluated as a drug. It's not a purely natural product. It might be extracted from one. But this is an amphetamine-like drug with potentially very serious side effects. We um, used to work closely with a, a um, pharmacist and uh, chemist at the State Health Department. He's no longer working there, but he does a lot of consulting for Chinese firms that want to enter the U.S. market with dietary supplements. And um, he said that he would test products in his lab and that he had never, ever come across a dietary, a herbal product to, uh, um, that was supposed to be used for erectile dysfunction that did not contain Viagra. He said every, every successful herbal Viagra contains Viagra, not, not powder, powdered rhino horn, uh, not some other herbal product, but simply, simply um, adulterated with a chemical product. And this rhino 3500 is another example of a herbal sex-enhancing product that contains Viagra. We get a fair number of calls about homeopathy or homeopathic products. At the Poison Control Center, people are concerned because the child might have gotten into eight or ten homeopathic pills. And if we're certain that it's a homeopathic product, we don't worry. And that's because homeopathic products are are diluted multiple times over. So you'll see on the side of the product things like 9x, 12x. And what that means is that the product has been, has been diluted tenfold nine times. So in, in increasingly more dilute concentrations of the product. In fact, the whole notion of homeopathy is not to have really any residual product in the pill, um, any of the active ingredient, but only its essence is left behind. So we don't worry about any active toxicology from, from known homeopathic products. However, there are other products that are sometimes labeled or, or at least loosely called homeopathic but they're really naturopathic, where they might be extracts of concentrated forms of animal products uh, or minerals. So um, make sure that it's re- truly a homeopathic product before you decide that it's not toxic. So turning now to uh, mushrooms, uh, this is a book we used to read to our kids when they were little. Um, My name is Nicholas. I live in a hollow tree. And uh, when it rains, I keep dry under a toadstool. This is a classic storybook mushroom picture the red top with the white warts on the top. And the other pictures here, you see the wicked witch holding a mushroom that has the white flecks on it, and then the, the little elf with, the, white, the, with the, mushroom, the red mushroom with the white caps. So what is this product or this mushroom? It's, it's very well known to storybook time, and it's also well known in the Bay Area. This is known as Amanita muscaria, the red-topped mushroom, also known as the fly agaric. 
This is a mushroom you also find in the illustrated Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Here's another picture, and it's not in color, but you can clearly see those nice big white warts uh, and uh, the... quote from Alice in Wonderland is, the caterpillar said, one side will make you grow taller and the other side will make you grow shorter. And sure enough, the hallucinations that are induced by this mushroom make people feel like they're extremely big or extremely small. So this is something that's, again, been known for, certainly at the time of Lewis Carroll's writing, but actually for thousands of years, people have known that this mushroom can cause hallucinations. Um, Most people find that write about it say the hallucinations are not all that um, appealing and unfortunately the mushroom also contains some other chemicals that make people vomit for an hour or two so you'd have to really be desperate I think to want to get high on this mushroom be willing to put up with the vomiting and then have the hallucinations go on for a few hours after that now to the deadly Amanita so the, the previous one was Amanita muscaria the red mushroom this is Amanita phylloides. Amanita phylloides grows in the Bay Area very much so. There's every year, in fact, the, our f- colleagues and friends in the Mycological Society in San Francisco tell us that there are more and more of these mushrooms growing. They just love this, the, the temperate climate. Uh, they grow under oak trees associated with the roots of old oak trees, and they grow everywhere. So be cautious about these. There are a number of dogs that die every year in the Bay Area from eating these mushrooms. And we get probably a half a dozen to a dozen cases per year, depending on the year, of humans uh, ingesting these mushrooms and becoming ill. This is also known as the death cap. Um, We've been told by people who ate it that it was really tasty. They assumed that if it tasted good, it couldn't possibly be dangerous. They figured if it's poisonous, it should taste bad. Not so. Other people have said, well, I assumed if I cooked it, that would be okay. This is a poison that's extremely potent and is heat-stable, meaning that that you cannot kill the poison by cooking the product. Uh, It causes severe vomiting and diarrhea, but the vomiting and diarrhea is delayed, usually 8 to 12 hours after the meal. So people have, they eat this wonderful mushroom, it's beautiful, it's tasty. They go to bed thinking, what a great meal, and they wake up at 2 or 3 in the morning with violent vomiting and diarrhea. And um, if they are luckily enough, lucky enough to recover from the vomiting and diarrhea, which can be very severe, can be like cholera, just tremendous volume loss uh, from the vomiting and diarrhea, uh, they may then succumb to liver failure because this mushroom attacks the liver cells and causes extreme uh, liver injury. The, in the past, the only outcome with extreme liver injury was death. Now we have the, the ability to transplant the liver uh, from a, if there's a donor available. And uh, again, a couple times a year, I would say, a uh, patient has to undergo a liver transplant uh, to survive this poisoning. That means they'll be taking anti-rejection drugs for the rest of their lives because of a bad choice of a meal. There are many proposed antidotes. None are proven to work. There is one that we try these days that's available as an intravenous formulation. It's called silibinin, which is are extracted from milk thistle. We don't know if it works for sure because it's never been subjected to a controlled, rigorous scientific study, um, but it seems to help. Um, but there are a variety of other, to- of other potential antidotes that have been tried over the years uh, with uh, no uh, proven success. Now, this is a mushroom that looks nearly identical 
to the Amanita phylloides. It's got a nice uh, yellow cap. Uh, You can see the sort of remnant of the um, covering, this white material on the top. It's not sticky dots like the Amanita muscaria. It's more of a continuous thing. Sometimes it peels away quite quickly, though, and all you're left with is the, the yellowish top. The yellow can be more like bronze in color. Um, this actually is an edible Amanita. This is edible. But it looks nearly identical to this one. And in fact, I've seen mushroom experts, professors from San Francisco State, we were on a walk some years ago uh, out in Point Reyes looking at mushrooms. He and his, his uh, postdoctoral fellows they were showing us various poisonous mushrooms, and I saw them arguing over a specimen, saying, oh, no, this is the edible one. No, it's the dangerous one. No, it's the edible one. No, it's the dangerous one. And they saw me looking you know, aghast, and then they said, yes, that's why we never eat the, edi- the so-called edible amanita. I know people who do, uh, and they say, well, I can tell the difference. There are some very subtle differences, certain times of the year and so on, um, but uh, uh, my, uh, my advice to them is, there are old mushroom hunters, and there are bold mushroom hunters, but there are very few old and bold mushroom hunters. So better to stay away from all Amanitas, not take the chance. They both apparently taste very good. What about one of these? Would you even consider eating one of these mushrooms? They look pretty disgusting, right? Some people call them like a brain on a stick, and the one on the, on the left. Uh, the one on the right is a morel, I've actually eaten morels in a restaurant, morel soup. I was a little bit nervous about it. I don't ever like to eat the wild mushroom offered on the menu because, do you know what, in California, and really as far as I know the rest of the country, there is no certification program for wild mushroom pickers. There's no certification program. There's no state regulation of wild mushroom pickers. That means uh, I could go out into the um, into Point Reyes and pick a bunch of mushrooms and sell them to a restaurant. Uh, and if the restaurant was crazy enough to buy them from me, uh, they could put them on the menu and cook them up and serve them. The good news is that we are not aware of any cases of Amanita phylloides poisoning occurring from a restaurant meal. So that's good. <laughs> but it just still scares me uh, that there is no certification program, no required uh, testing you know, like an exam that you have to take or, or maybe, um, you know, prove that you know what you're looking for and so on uh, to be certified as a mushroom picker in California. So, uh, so that, that's why I don't eat wild mushrooms on the menu. So the one on the left here is known as the false morel. It doesn't look a whole lot like the true morel. Uh, they both are kind of funny looking and not particularly tasty. But the one on the left is actually quite dangerous. It can also cause liver injury. It can cause convulsions. Uh, and um, although some people think you can eat it if you prepare it correctly, that is, you parboil it and then throw away the water because it's a water-soluble poison, uh, others have said, well, even if you inhale the steam coming off the parboiled mushroom, you might become intoxicated by it. But the mycologists that I know say, well, yeah, some people do eat this if they prepare it carefully. We had a case a few years back of an incident where... Um, some mushrooms were being sold at Whole Foods and Berkeley Bowl, and they looked just like the false morels. In fact, um, we got a call one evening at the Poison Control Center from a woman who said, 
well, I got these mushrooms at Whole Foods, and I brought them home, and I was about to cook them. And she said, you know, they didn't look like morels that I had seen before. These were supposedly morels, but they didn't look like them. So I called up my father, who's in Michigan, and he's a mycology kind of uh, uh, hobbyist. And he and I took a picture of the mushrooms and I sent it to him by email. And he said, "Oh, don't eat those! Don't eat those! Those are those are false morels." And um, this is the the picture on the right there. So you can see they look an awful lot like they have sort of a similar coloration and that same kind of brainy look. Gyrometra, in fact, is the name of the mushrooms, gyrometra. And so uh, uh, the woman called us at the poison center and said, my father says these are false morels, but they're being sold at Whole Foods and Berkeley Bowl. And uh, it was quite a to-do, actually. We were um, on the phone with the health department to determine if we needed to remove these from the shelves on a Friday night, uh, go to the media and make sure people didn't eat them. Uh, fortunately, we were able to get one of our mycology experts to look at the, the mushroom specimens directly rather than just a photograph. And they said, no, these look almost like, exactly like false morels, but there's something called the snow morel, the snow morel. They grow uh, in the Sierras just at the snow line, uh, and they are edible. They look a lot like the false morel, but they are edible. So that, uh, luckily, uh, we hadn't gone to the media at that point and, and destroyed the the um, business of those two fine um, outfits. So that's the end of my remarks. I'm happy to take questions. Um, I do encourage you, anytime you have a worry about a poisoning, um, somebody that you know or yourself took an extra medication by accident, uh, accidentally picked up the wrong glass and took a a swig, uh, whatever, uh, call us. We're available 24 hours a day. This 800 number works anywhere in the country. If you uh, happen to be visiting Massachusetts and you call this number, you'll get the Massachusetts Poison Control Center. Uh, If you call us here, you'll get us. If you have a cell phone from the Bay Area and you're traveling, you'll probably get us as well because it's it's tied to to the area code and prefix. We're happy to answer your questions, and I'm happy to take your questions right now. Thank you. Yes. Oh, the question is, what what effects do we anticipate um, on our poison control center by the um, new federal budget? We are a bit worried because uh, uh, some of our funding, well, a, lot of, a large part, portion of our funding comes from the feds. The good news there is that the funding for poison control centers has been a bipartisan, bipartisan issue. Uh, both parties like what poison centers do. So it hasn't been a political football in the past. We do get some additional monies. In addition to the standard amount from the federal government, we get some matching funds through the S-CHIP program. The S-CHIP is the childhood health program that's affiliated with Medi-Cal, or Medi- yeah, Medicaid. And that is potentially in jeopardy because I've heard that there's, there's, they're looking at whether the matching funds will continue. So that would be difficult for us. But, you know, we're just waiting to see what happens question there. I can t- uh, the question is about peyote, um, about its status legally as well as its uh, effects. Um, I can say, first off, I have no personal experience with peyote. <laughs> um, but I, you know, and we don't see very many cases through the Poison Control Center, so I have very little experience in managing people with peyote intoxication. Um, generally, it is a fairly benign hallucinations and so that's probably the reason that we don't see much of it. We don't get called from emergency departments about people being exposed. 
Um, it has an interesting um, uh, legal status in that it is, if it's being used as part of a religious ritual, uh, then it's considered to be uh, uh, legal. And so that, then it depends on who's interpreting what's religious, what is a, a, a bona fide religious ritual or not. That's about as much as I could say about it, though. Yeah, so the question is about, um, is it really true that, that herbal supplements and dietary supplements are so loosely controlled uh, that the FDA cannot really um, micromanage their safety and efficacy claims? Yes, by and large, that's very clear. The Dietary Supplement and Health Education Act was very clear uh, in defining what the FDA could and could not do. And they, they breezed it off and said, oh, well, don't worry. If there's a problem, the FDA can step in. But the FDA has a high threshold to come in and st- to step in and say that something is a danger. They have to prove that there's a danger. Now, there have been some uh, removals from the market based upon that. So the Jin Buwan experience, uh, ephedra, which used to be found in a lot of dietary supplements as a workout drug, is basically an amphetamine-like drug. It's like pseudoephedrine that we use for cough and colds. And that's also been removed from a lot of products based upon, but based upon research that was submitted to the FDA. But it's um, it's difficult. It's a, it's a much higher bar uh, than it is for drugs. You know, in terms of the FDA's um, the FDA's responsibility to do to um, how do I put it? The FDA the FDA is, is more shackled in doing something about it than they are with with drugs. Yeah, so the question there is, uh, even in civil uh, matters, like if you tried to sue the company, uh, which company is it? Uh, there's a number of shell companies that are constantly changing. Uh, we see this a lot in illicit drugs that are being sold as, we, we see them now as being sold as research chemicals. It's sort of slightly tangential to the dietary supplement pathway, but it's a loophole that people can use. Well, I'm not selling this as a drug for this person to get high. I'm selling it as a plant food or a room deodorizer uh, or a research chemical. And in, in fact, on the label I'm putting, clearly not for uh, human consumption, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod. But and a number of those products are coming on the market. But when you try to work backwards, where did they come from and who manufactured them? Uh, very difficult to tell. And many of them from overseas, probably. Question there and then there. The question was about, do we have antidotes uh, for m- many or most of the poisons that we deal with? The, um, the answer to that is that the best antidote is good supportive care. So just like love's first kiss in the first story I, I told you, um, most poisons that, that um, cause problems cause um, people to stop breathing, for example, and we breathe for them so that until the effects of the poison wear off. Or they may have some effects on the heart or the blood pressure, and we can manage those and stabilize them in, in some cases with IV fluids or with, with standard drugs. As far as true antidotes, namely something that directly counteracts the effect of the poison, there are very few of those. There are probably a, a dozen that we use on a fairly regular basis. Um, but in uh, most cases, it's really just supportive care. There was a question there. My little cousin is 20 years old. He's in the military, and he is a fitness fanatic. Hmm tells me that he is taking on a regular basis anabol, insulin, clenbuterol, halotestin, and DNP. Your reaction? I'm astounded, and uh, I'm scared for him. And um, some of those, I would say just about all the ones you listed, should be illegal. 
There sounds to me like um, anabolic steroids, testosterone. DNP is dinitrophenol, which is a very dangerous chemical drug that helps you lose weight. Um, so those are those are very dangerous drugs, and I'm sure that if his superiors knew about it, they would be uh, very unhappy with it. The, the military is trying very hard to, you know, at the one hand, they want their recruits to be at their best. They want them to be wanting to work out. So they, they, they encourage the use of things like caffeine substance uh, supplements and, you know, and creatine, which helps people think, build muscle. But uh, I don't think they would uh, permit or uh, condone uh, anabolic steroids, um, DMP, things like that. That's that's very scary. Is there anything I can tell him that he should watch for as far as symptoms? Well, uh, clenbuterol, for example, can cause very fast heart rates, lowering the blood pressure, um, lowering his potassium levels, could cause cardiac arrhythmias. He could have a cardiac arrest. Dinitrophenol can cause the body temperature to go skyrocketing high. He could end up with hyperpyrexia or hyperthermia and uh, have a cardiac arrest from that as well. Um, you know, and then, of course, the effects of the anabolic steroids are, are well known over time as well. So, no, it's very, very dangerous. Thank yeah, thanks. Thanks for bringing that up. A uh, question there and then in front. Thank you. Yeah, so a question is about for FDA-approved drugs um, that have been through the process, how often do they... Do they um, evidence a problem? How often after they get on the market do they, they end up showing a liver effect or teratogenicity or something like that that was unexpected? Um, the good news is that it's relatively uncommon, but it does happen, and that's the reason the FDA not only tries to do a really good job before approving the drug, looking for those kinds of problems, but recognizing that it's they're probably not going to see um, rare problems until it gets out to a much larger population of people using the drug. They have something called post-marketing surveillance, meaning they require the company uh, that's selling the drug to keep an eye out for the drug, to look, be looking for reports. And the FDA has a reporting system for people who think that there may have been an adverse reaction. So the companies take that very seriously and look for evidence of, of reports of things that didn't come up during the pre-approval process. Um, one source that I like, uh, which is related to um, uh, the... Uh, is it called the Good, the Good Pills, Bad Pills newsletter? This is Sidney Wolf out of Washington, D.C., affiliated with Ralph Nader, and he has a, I think he still has a, a drug newsletter um, looking for dangerous drugs that are on the market, telling people to avoid certain ones. These are pre these prescription drugs that are approved. He says, rule of thumb is wait seven years before taking a, a drug that's new on the market. When the drug's been on the market for seven years, almost always, if there's been a, going to be a problem that causes the drug to be recalled, it'll have been recalled within seven years, if you can wait that long. I mean, if it's a, if it's a new drug that's just tremendous and there's no other drug on the market like it, then obviously people are going to be tempted to use it earlier. But if you can wait, wait, wait seven years. You had a question there. So there, it's, uh, creatine is what people use, the creatine, and it, it's related to creatinine. Um, there's been a lot of interest in it. You know, does it cause kidney injury? Um, does it really actually build muscle? And as far as I know, the, 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 the answer is not clear. Um, it's probably relatively harmless. Uh, and as far as we know, it doesn't produce any um, significant side effects. So a lot of people use it. But I, I don't know specifically by kidney stones. Have you, either of you heard about that? Um, but it's, it's definitely widely used. 
and, and probably pretty safe. So a question about adverse effects from statins. Um, we don't get the reports very often because um, if somebody takes an overdose, yeah, usually with overdose we don't see any problems at all. The, the problems with uh, the muscle injury from statins has been with chronic use, with daily use for months. And that's a real side effect. It's relatively uncommon, but it's common enough that, that it's been widely reported. And it's a reason why many people stop using the drug is that they get muscle aches. Um, in some cases, that can be quite severe. So, yes, a lot of people are taking them. I think they're, they're good drugs. And you know, certainly people have serious cholesterol problems that can't deal with them through exercise and diet. They may need to be on them. Yeah, now I should have had probably about five or six different pictures. The question was about uh, how easy is it to recognize poison oak? Um, it's, it's tricky because at different times of the year, it changes color. So in the spring now, it's going to be nice green, sort of brilliant green and shiny. Midway through the year with the dust accumulation on the leaves, it's kind of dull looking. And in the fall and winter, it turns bright red. And then it falls off the, the, um, the, the stems. And yet the stems can still have, for people who are very sensitive, even the stems without the leaves on them can still have some of the uh, erucial oils on them that can cause sensitization. So we've had cases where uh, people were clearing um, some brush out of the backyard, didn't see any poison oak because all the leaves had dropped off, and got really bad poison oak from being exposed. Uh, I would suggest looking at... Um, you know, Google images and seeing the variety of different ones that you that you can come across in terms of the colors. The the shape is fairly distinct. Once you've seen it a few times, then you begin to recognize it as you're hiking. But it's it's a big problem in, in the Bay Area and in the Sierra foothills. There's just a lot of it growing. Ah, so are are all hallucinogens poisons? Um, the the answer to that is everything is a poison. Including water, it's just the right dose that makes it a poison. So a drop of water, of course, or a glass of water is not toxic. But if you were to drink two gallons of water in a, in a hurry, your body's uh, salts would become so diluted, your brain would swell, um, and you'd, you'd go into a coma. So um, it's all about dose. So that's that's what defines what's a poison. You know, between and many of the things that are poisons are actually remedies at lower doses. Uh, that's a good question. I, I'd have to look that up. There, there are obviously pea pods that we, you know, what we, and we typically call those sweet peas. Those are not poisonous. You can eat the pod and the, and the peas inside the pod. But the, yeah, uh, I don't think they're very toxic. I don't think there would be enough to cause you know to be concerned enough to go to the ED with that. Some of the um, sweet pea family may have some. Are you looking it up for me? <laughs> um, they may have some relationship to the tomato plant, for example, which is also sometimes called poisonous in a very low, low degree of toxicity. And that's an interesting uh, point that you bring up uh, or that, that you caused me to think about. Many of the, the common names that we give to plants apply to more than one plant. And uh, one of the plants might be toxic and the other non-toxic, or they might have different toxicities. So there's, for example, uh, hemlock, there's hemlock, that, like described with the, pulp, the purple uh, uh, stems, and, then, and that's just called poison hemlock. There's another kind of hemlock called water hemlock, which looks like a, a wild um, uh, radish, and it doesn't have the same look at all. It doesn't have the, the um, 
stem like that. It has a similar looking flower pattern, but they're two different, completely different poisons. The one, the water hemlock causes convulsions, whereas the regular hemlock does not. So um, uh, many different examples of, of common names of, of plants that are um, shared by more than one plant. What we usually do when someone calls us with a concern about a plant exposure, and I don't know if that happened in your case, if you call the poison center, we'll say, take the plant in question to a local nursery, and then call us from the nursery, and the nursery can give us the botanic name. And then we know we're working on it with the right information. Yeah, do we, do we deal with uh, questions about poisoning of animals? Um, we do get calls about animal exposures, we recognize that we are not experts in animal um, health, and although we know something about the effects of the poisons in animals, because they're very similar in most cases, there are some important differences. So we usually refer the caller to the National Veterinary Poison Control Center. There's a, a national 800 number. I think they're located in Chicago. They, uh, unlike our poison center, which answers, answers all of our calls for free, this poison center um, requires a, a credit card before they'll answer your question. But it's, it's not unreasonable. I think it's about 50 bucks. Um, and we recommend it because, again, there are, there are important differences. For example, just to give you a couple of examples, I don't know a lot about poisoning in animals, but I know, for example, that uh, cats cannot take Tylenol. Cats can get very sick from Tylenol even in regular doses. Um, so, you know, we say, well, you know, we, we can give some general advice. We might even find it in our poison index, which is a the poisoning information resource that we use. Often has a little bit of information about animal poisonings, but we just don't consider ourselves experts enough to, to deal with it, especially if it's something potentially toxic. So that's a good, good point, um, that in fact, uh, you don't need to go to a GNC. You can go to the, you know, local... Um, food store and find uh, whole shelves full of dietary supplements. Your CVS store has a whole section of that as well. And um, how much of the effect is placebo? Uh, some studies suggest that placebo effects is as high as 30, 30, 35%. Even when people know they're getting a placebo, by the way, they'll have some benefit from a placebo. But uh, certainly a 30 to 35% improvement is quite tremendous. So who knows? You know, some of these products. Um, haven't undergone enough testing to be able to say for sure that they, they might work, actually. They might work very well. We just don't know because it hasn't been proven in a scientific study. Um, and, and there must be some reason why people have used them for thousands of years. Although I hate to think that you know people are using powdered rhino horn only because it looks like an erection, not because there's really any benefit to it. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of products that are being used for their, all the wrong reasons. Synthetic testosterone uh, should be pretty much equivalent to um, natural testosterone. So there might, it might be some variations on it, you know, a slightly altered chemical structure, but at the intention, of course, is to act like testosterone and to have the, the muscle-building effect of that. So it's, it's not harmful? Not harmful? Well, uh, <laughs> depends on who you talk to. Uh, anabolic steroids, you know, have... Obviously, they, they do help build muscle. Um, they, have other, they have other effects as well that are maybe not, not so desirable. But Oh, okay. Yeah, so they're all basically testosterone and, and uh, other anabolic steroids are all designed to, to increase muscle mass. Yeah. The question is about you know, someone who um, surreptitiously puts something in a drink. 
with the intention of incapacitating the victim for purposes of robbery or sexual assault. Um, and one of the products that was being used for this purpose is called Rufi's. comes from a Rohypnol. Rohypnol is a, a brand name of a product. It's a, it's a type of um, sedative drug that's very similar to Valium. It's a sleeping agent. And it wasn't available in the United States, but people could buy it in Mexico. They would go to Mexico and buy lots of this stuff. And it was desirable because um, it made people very sleepy and they'd forget what happened to them. Uh, and it was easy to dissolve in the drink. That was the, the real um, benefit of, Ruf- of Rohypnol was it was easy to dissolve in the drink. And because it wasn't a drug used in the United States, then the usual screens that we do, the, the, the um, blood and urine screens looking for the drug, uh, if we suspected somebody had been poisoned, it wouldn't show up because it was not a drug that was used in the U.S. So um, that's not so much the case anymore. The manufacturer of Rohypnol changed the formulation so that when you put it into a drink, it actually kind of flocculates and makes a big kind of weird color and and makes the drink look really strange, um, for one thing. So that's changed. It's harder to, to sneak it into someone's drink. And uh, the toxicology screens have, have evolved so that they're more likely to pick up uh, rohypnol in the drink. But there are other products that can be used for this purpose. So there, anything that will cause a person to be sleepy has probably been used as an agent of assault. And, and what we call them familiarly is a Mickey Finn. Have you ever heard that term? A Mickey, and you see the uh, movies from the 30s, someone opening up a little paper packet and pouring in a, a white powder into someone's drink. Uh, that was probably chloral hydrate, which was the Mickey Finn that was popular in the 30s, a sleeping agent. Um, echinacea is plant-based, and as far as I know, it's safe. Yeah. Oh, yes, have there been poisonings from cannabis? Yeah, yeah, we actually... Um, fair number of calls about cannabis, uh, children getting into products, and particularly now that there's these more concentrated products, not only the, the marijuana leaves themselves that are more potent, but the concentrated... Um, uh, tetrahydrocannabinol products. There, there come as oils. They come as candies, and chocolates, uh, waffles. Um, you can get the, the cannabis-laced products, and kids look at them like, "Hey, this is food." Not surprising that they get intoxicated by them. Children who get intoxicated by THC or marijuana are usually uh, not in uh, life-threatening, but they're um, very sleepy. They're very uh, goofy-looking. They have difficulty walking. They call it a taxi. They're stumbling, and it lasts for a day or two. Some of them, some of them end up being hospitalized. And, and you know, with the coming legalization in California next year, we're anticipating an increase in the number of cases that where kids inadvertently get into these products. In Colorado, they set about um, working, trying to prevent these these exposures by requiring that any uh, cannabinoid product that was be so, being sold had to come in it with a childproof container, like a, pl- a Ziploc bag with a kind of a lock on it. And I think that has kept down the number of, of uh, exposures. We had a, a case, uh, was it last year, the, the quinceanera party uh, in the mission? There was a, a large party celebrating a 15th birthday, and uh, there were some gummy uh, candies there. And apparently, somehow, I still don't know that anybody's figured out where they came from, but they were clearly a cannabinoid-containing gummies. And, you know, kids were eating them because they were candies. And there are a number of kids and adults that got intoxicated end up in ERs around the Bay, around San Francisco.
Ah, yes, so the synthetic THC is another problem, uh, and we see a fair amount of this. There are a number of chemicals that um, act on the body like marijuana, like THC, um, but they don't show up in the toxicology screen for THC. So if you're uh, required to do a drug testing in your workplace, if you're a bus driver or truck driver, police officer, uh, whatever, and you get random drug tests, and marijuana is one of the things they're looking for, and you want to get high once in a while, but you know that the drug test may remain positive for a few days after you get high, then maybe you'll try one of these synthetic marijuana pills or products because it won't ruin your drug screen. The problem is that, uh, like other products we've talked about, where they're being made overseas in uh, clandestine chemistry labs, there's a new one out every week with a new methyl group or a new ethyl group added to the chemical structure. We have absolutely no idea. Sorry about that. We have absolutely no idea what the effects of those of those chemicals are on humans, let alone animals or anyone else, because they haven't been tested. Um, so they generally produce marijuana-like effects, but they can also produce seizures, hallucinations, um, tachycardia, you know, cardiac problems. So it's it's a real uh, Wild West story out there with the synthetics. Okay, that's a good question. So the difference between intoxication and poisoning, because we kind of use those um, not quite interchangeably, but but often in this, you know, think, talking about the same drug. And generally we mean, so if we say a, a low dose, a beneficial effect, we'd call it therapeutic. Um, but if someone's intention in using the low dose was to get mildly high, we'd call them intoxicated. You know, if, if you drink two beers... Um, you get intoxicated with the alcohol. Um, that's uh, not quite poisoned, although someone might say, well, it's a mild degree of poisoning, so it's on a kind of scale. But usually we'd be thinking poisoned by alcohol. You'd be thinking more like, well, he had 10 drinks and he was found under the, under the table barely breathing. That would be poisoned. So it's really all about the dose and the degree of effect, yeah. Ashwell, thank you for so many good questions. It was really fun to, uh, to answer them. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.